This episode of It's All Genre to Me was brought to you by my mother. Melissa Baldwin has been an avid supporter of Moon Knight, watches the show multiple times, calls and texts me weekly to discuss, and listens to the episode every week to uh, hear more of our thoughts and opinions. Now, if you're an avid listener like Melissa Baldwin, um, I hope you would consider supporting the show by potentially buying an ad read such as this one. Now, during these ad reads, um, I'm willing to do just about anything that I don't consider to be completely morally corrupt. So if you want to spend $10 for a beginning, ending, or mid-roll ad read, um, you know, if it's a minute or two, I'll read a scene from Jim Carrey's The Mask. I'll uh, do a voice. I'll do a birthday shout-out. Um, I'll read your Tinder bio. I will um, read... I- I'll promote your Poshmark. Hey, go go to my mom's Poshmark. That's good. Um, I can tell people to go to your Poshmark. And... Uh, we can, we can also maybe set up some dates. Make it be like the classifieds. You know, if you like pina coladas, uh, getting caught in the rain. Uh, if you, I don't know, hate yoga and have half a brain. I don't know what that fucking song is about. Um, maybe you can find someone else who loves genre television and Moon Knight as much as we do. So please feel free to like, subscribe, and buy an ad. Thanks so much. Everything inside of me is, like, screaming not to open this thing. You want Hero to get to Amit first? All right, all right. Ooh. Oh, man. Where's the Ushapti? Well, I mean, if you're gonna hide it for all eternity, you're probably gonna put it in a place where the average looter wouldn't think to look. So, what do you think? Um... Alexander was the voice of Onimit. Alright, I'm gonna try something. Gonna do something here. Sorry. Oh, so sorry. Sorry, Mr. Gray. I couldn't be more sorry. Yeah, that's it. Get in there. Reach in there, buddy. Ah! This week on the podcast, we discuss Moon Knight, Episode 5. One podcast to rule them all. One podcast to find them. One podcast to bring them all, and in the darkness, find them. The game is on, Watson. I've got a bad feeling about this. What if I'm not the hero? What if I'm the podcast guy? I'm made of rocks, as you can see, but don't let that intimidate you. You don't need to be afraid, unless you made of scissors. <laughs> Just a little rock, paper, scissors joke for you. It's all genre to me. We're gonna need a bigger podcast. We could have been killed, or worse, podcasted. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. I am Groot. We named the Monkey Podcast.
Woo! Hello, everyone. Hi. Welcome to the best episode of Moon Knight. <laughs> Woo! Oh, my God. <laughs> the episode we have all been waiting for. Literally, though. Literally. I had it in my notes to talk about how Mark is not turning out to be as Jewish as we'd hoped. And that suddenly is not a topic of conversation anymore. Yeah, I was going to say, okay, Yamaka Mark. I, oh, listen, that's image is getting saved on my computer. Yeah, his dad's hair and glasses. I know. Wow. <laughs> so excellent. Just a great dad all around. I do have a few notes on the Mar- Yamaka scene, but uh, we'll get to those. No spoilers. <laughs> I was going to say, do we, I mean, outside of saying, we love this episode. This was. Do, do we want to talk too much before spoiler country, or I'll let you give your thoughts, then we'll we'll maybe get into spoilies. I think my only non-spoiler thoughts are just that I think we've harped in past episodes on the hero's journey and how episodes were not aligning with it, and it was really difficult to figure out where acts were falling and what the arc of the story was. And while I do think that you know there's there's other story arcs out there and I don't think the hero's journey is perfect. I also think your point that the hero's journey could not be better suited for a genre than the superhero genre. Um, I think that's absolutely true. And I think this episode is a testament to that because it was a perfect hero's journey. And if you, dear listeners, thought that this was a perfect episode of television, this is why. It is because of the hero's journey. And uh, so we're going to talk about that. Yeah. I think my only other thought is that I'm like, if they have these like episodes that are like, you know, this perfect pilot, this perfect every day, and then this perfect hero's journey as your, you know, climax, what were these writers doing? What happened? There, I mean, it makes me wonder if it is the studio sort of punching in like, you have to go to the tomb. Because we didn't, we didn't have to go that much to the tomb. Mm-mm. No. It makes me think, like, what were we doing with the jousting? <laughs> the jousting was not part of the hero's journey. <laughs> uh, no heroic jousting. All right, let's get into spoiler country. All right. Now boarding. Hello everyone, this is your captain speaking. We will be beginning our descent into spoiler country. The local time is spoiler o'clock. Please use caution as you listen on because, as I said, it's all spoilers from here. Okay, excellent. Rebecca, do you have a summary? Okay, my summary is going to be very brief because I just want to get in and start hitting all the points of this this journey that we go on. Mm-hmm. Essentially what has happened is at the end of the last episode, Mark was shot. He woke up in this uh, mental institution, and now he basically is being faced with this question of, can you return to the moment when you and Stephen first split? What is the trauma that is behind this split personality? And this whole episode is Mark's journey back into his memories, going back into increasing layers of trauma, and then the kind of frame of it is that he is on a boat, which I called with my Inception lights. <laughs> I said, I it's his body on a boat. <laughs> on a boat. And he and uh, Stephen and Toweret, who is the hippo goddess, are um, trying to make the scales of his heart balance. And if he can balance them, he might be able to exit 
this boat and go back to the land of the living and save Layla. And if he can't balance them, he will be dead forever. And that is the setup of this episode. And that is the arc of it. And I just want to get in and start talking kind of point by point. Yeah, this was a really amazing episode. It was such a joy to watch because, like Rebecca said, we have been harping on this hero's journey and you're just watching it. And I mean, I think especially my study and my trying to like internalize some of these beats for my own writing and, you know, improvising, you can just feel them coming. You know what I mean? Like they're just is such good, like, tension and build up that like you know that the worst thing you've ever seen is going to happen and you just can't wait for them to fulfill on it and it fulfilled it fulfilled everything um do you want to talk briefly just about like what is this hero's journey that we keep talking about yes okay so um the hero's journey is just like a what do you call it like a story trope i don't actually know what an archetype yeah Um, And so generally, the idea is that um, you have a character um, and you want this character to sort of experience some amount of change throughout the episode. And so kind of what we talk about in TV is that we want the character to make a small change and have like some sort of tempered every day and then getting down to, you know, hell and reconciling with your demons and coming back up. Um, And then over the six episode arc, we want them to do that on a much broader scale. And so um, just quickly to go over some of the um, components of the hero's journey, um, you sort of start out with your everyday, your ordinary world, um, then your call to action. This is the next part of what we constantly reference, the refusal of the call, which is the (laughs) classic, like you understand something's going to happen and you say, I don't want to do it. And unfortunately, that's a part of the story. And like when it's missing, when is when we have those weird tomb episodes where you're like, well, they just did a bunch of things. They just showed because, up here and kind of went. <laughs> yes, because there's no change if you don't say, no, I don't want to, and then later accept, yes, I will. And so um, it goes. you go through, um, you know, meeting of the mentor, crossing of the threshold, tests, um, allies and enemies, the approach. Um, then we sort of get to the next big component which is the ordeal, like what is the horrible thing that is going to happen to you. And then you get to the reward, the seizing of the sword. Um, so how have you, you know, won something because of the ordeal? How has the ordeal changed you? So not just you've changed, but like this exterior thing has actually served a function in your life. And then the crazy thing is that you have to go back to the ordinary world. Yeah. And so once you've experienced this massive change, like once you've gone to hell and faced your demons, you know, I, I forgot what um, Campbell's different things are, but I remember they talk about it a lot in the writing of community that there's always like, you know, the reconciliation with the father and like a bunch of random things. And and yeah, then you have to go to the road back. So you have to figure out how you're going to get back to your ordinary world with this newfound information. Um, and then you become resurrected. And so you actually become you know alive again from going down to the underworld and then um the return with the exilier exilier elixir thank you i'm like (laughs) it's one of those words that i've never read out loud yeah it's definitely a a book word a book word 
And you all can't see Rachel, but she is repeatedly making a circle with her finger as she talks because the, so the author of the hero's journey or, you know, this concept is Joseph Campbell. And he analyzed tons and tons and tons of myths from around the world to kind of come up with this pattern. And he drew it as a circle or you can draw it as a circle um, where you're basically starting and ending in the same point, but you are a fundamentally different person by the time you get back. And that makes it an incredibly compelling story because it is full of, you know, plot and action and stuff, but it's also incredibly character driven. It is being the the real kind of change. The important part of the change is the way that a person is affected by the journey that they're on rather than just like, I went here and I fought a battle and I came home and I am exactly the same as I was when I left because that's not really a story. That's just kind of a sequence of events. Right. Right. And so I'm I'm currently looking at Joseph Campbell's The 17 Stages of the Monomyth. And there are some critical things that I kind of wish um, were actually in our 12 simplified stages. Mm. Um, for example, the refusal of the return. Interesting. Because we definitely I think, see that in this episode. Yes. And that was a really big thing for community was that like this frequently happened that like, you know, Jeff didn't want to do something. He said, I refuse to change. Then he goes on this journey with his six little friends and they have a great time. And then he realizes he doesn't want to go back to where he came from. Mm -hmm. And you have to, you know what I mean? There's no, you can't escape sort of the hand that you've been dealt. And so the refusal of the return to me is this great like mirror to the refusal of the call that brings together the reconciliation. Absolutely. And I think that inserts a kind of tragic element into the triumph that you may realize that, you know, you've you've gained something really important in through these trials and ordeals and that, you know, there's a fear that you might lose that going back to where you came from. And oh. we'll get there in this episode. I really, okay, let's, I want to, let's start. Let's do this. Okay, great. Let me get my phone notes out um i also yesterday i was so tired you might hear a few little rogue coughs um i have a bit of a cold and so for the first 10 minutes i literally forgot to take notes no (laughs) and so then i paused it and like backfilled all my notes but i'm like okay i hope i got everything but i'll kind of just start and then you can feel free to fill things in um so so far i have my cold open is mark is in the hospital and This is the classic, like, which ordinary world are we in? Mm -hmm. Because we still don't know. You know, we speculated that this was an afterlife. uh, But there is a potential that this is real life. Moon Knight, the TV show, is fake. And they are going to pull the rug out from under us. And that the real every day is Mark is in the psych ward. Yeah. And I, I actually still think that could happen. And I kind of think that would be fun in some strange subversive way that like this is one of the only times where I think the character having you know multiple personality disorder and mental illness is potentially more interesting than the Egypt stuff that I'm like okay if you pull the rug out for me and it was only just a dream I'll kind of be mad about how much time we spent running around a tomb if it was only just a dream but I will appreciate the fact that it means that potentially we will get back to get to go back to our ordinary life of Steven as a gift shopist or Mark as a mercenary, because those are the two things I've always been most interested in. 
I agree. I I thought this was such an interesting opening because we do get this like little prelude where we have this super brief flashback. Um, we hear a boy, I think we hear a boy screaming and then a woman says, this is all your fault. And to me, this was kind of a, the true ordinary world was before all of this happened to Mark, this was the moment that we will return to later in the episode. This is the moment where it all changed. And then of course that, you know, scene lasts 30 seconds and we end up back in Harrow's office and he, he sets up this kind of dichotomy between sense and nonsense, which I thought was so interesting that yeah. he is basically getting Mark to say like, yeah, I'm here. I said I was talking to a talking hippo and was in Egypt and raiding a tomb. Like, does that sound like sense or nonsense? Well, it does sound like nonsense. And it's to me, that was such an interesting almost like meta commentary on the superhero genre because everything about the superhero genre is nonsense. And yet it is all played so straight and taken as if it were the most logical thing in the world. You know, someone develops the ability to fly or, you know, hear thoughts and they don't think I'm insane. They think, oh, I must have a superpower, which no one in the real world would ever think to themselves. Well, I'll actually... I'll entertain the idea that people think that because if there was a whole world where other people have superpowers, then maybe I would think that. Like if I knew there were mutants, if I knew that, you know, Magneto is in my world and Captain America is in my world, that potentially I think for one second I'm crazy. And then I think for one second I'm a superhero. That's a good point. And it does raise the question of in this psych ward limbo that Harrow has created, do the Avengers exist? (laughs) (laughs) i I mean seriously if he's asking mark if this sounds like sense or nonsense and he's expecting the answer to be nonsense does that mean there aren't superheroes yeah i mean i think that's what's so great about having these discussions with mark is because mark is you know in some ways mentally ill and susceptible to nonsense Mm -hmm. and so he's the one person that's going to be the most likely to sort of indulge that Because Robert Downey Jr. is never going to be, you know, he's like, I'm a genius. I did this. I'm a superhero. And it's so matter of fact. And Mark is the one that kind of can't take anything in his life at face value. That's a really good point. Yeah. And Harrow does refer to it as a superhero fantasy as well, suggesting that, you know, maybe superheroes do exist. But why would Mark be one of all people? Yeah. 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 And it is weird that his um, his uh, alter ego or second identity is also made up. So that makes you think, oh, the Moon Knight thing is just as made up as Stephen Grant, mm-hmm. who came from, you know, a 1980s VHS. Yeah. Yeah. We saw the Moon Knight action figure, too. So maybe those are all just inventions. What is that? Occam's razor? The most simple <laughs> answer is always the right one or something? I think I think is that what Occam's razor is? <laughs> well, I think that's what it's usually referred to as, but I think the actual Occam's razor is just that you should test the simplest hypothesis first. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be right, but just that that should be in your method mm. of Okay, of that actually makes more sense to me as well because I'm like <laughs> there are strange things and unlikely things still happen, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. talk about 2016. <laughs> 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 oh man. All right. So, we get a call to adventure. Harrow presents it in 
uh, nice, clear terms. He says, if we could break down the walls between you and Stephen, we might finally understand what happened. Um, and he says, I want to hear about the boy. And that is Mark's call to adventure. That is him being asked to reconcile his trauma, to return to the moment at which Mark and Stephen split and face that truth that he does not want to face. My question is, why does Harrow care so much? Is he a figment of Mark's imagination in this place, serving the same function as Toweret, which is to get Mark to process his trauma? Or, and, and they're just kind of like this good cop, bad cop duo. Um, or is this Harrow really in Mark's head who wants this information for so specific reason? Yeah, I also would like to pose a third thought, which mm -hmm. is that Tawaret suggested, like, this is simply the afterlife. You know, she didn't seem unsettled by the fact that it looked like a hospital. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't seem like she was, like, thinking, oh, is there another guy here doing some astral projections? She was like, oh, no, this is your imagination. Very mm -hmm. matter of fact. I know how the rules of this underlife work. And so I was wondering if Harrow is a figment of Mark's imagination. Yeah. And that, like... It's especially Harrow in the afterlife, he's not controlling it. He's not projecting it. Mark is putting those things onto himself. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, that this is his sort of subconscious saying, like, you have to come to the terms with this. Because this is presumably what someone said to him in a hospital 10 years ago in Chicago. Yes. When he was trying to sort this out the first time. And Harrow does refer to it as um, Putnam Medical Facility in Chicago, Illinois. Um which is similar to the name of the mental institution that he's in in the comics, which is, I think, Putnam Psychiatric Hospital or something, mm, mm -hmm. also in Chicago. Which, yeah, yeah I, w I do wonder if Harrow, in this sense, is based on a previous doctor that Mark did have. Yeah, because who's Duchamp? We don't know yet, right? We don't know. Okay. This is, I have two lingering questions, which are, where's Duchamp and where's Jake? Other than that, it was a perfect episode. <laughs> yeah. No, this Where's Jake thing was kind of pissing me off because I'm like, when the two hearts were weighed, it seemed like... Isn't there a either, third heart? Yeah. But it maybe, seemed like either Mark would have to reconcile with Jake to get rid of him to balance his own heart, or all three hearts would need to be weighed. Here's a theory. Okay. Mark and Steven both approach Tawaret, and she is not expecting more than one person. Mm-hmm. She is like, oh, there's two of you. Okay, are you twins? Um, and it's only because Mark let Stephen out of the sarcophagus where he was trapped. He didn't let Jake out of the sarcophagus. That sarcophagus is still in there. So he might But be... I'm trying to figure out the rules of the scale, though. Maybe the scale doesn't know. Maybe, maybe it's okay. literally just like whatever is physically on the scale gets okay. weighed. And to where it doesn't know that there's a third heart locked in a sarcophagus so yes yes speaking of jake though the next phase of this journey is the refusal of the call that mark does not want to face that memory and he tries to do this thing of like oh hey i feel great like i don't need your help doc i'll i'll see myself out and then he tries to stab his own eye <laughs> with a glass pyramid and uh our friend alex pointed out that the accent that he uses in that moment, maybe it's just because his face is smashed in, but it does not sound like Mark. And it does not sound like how he sounded 30 seconds prior, um, even with the same injuries on his face. And so 
uh, could could that have been Jake? Violent little Jake who loves stabbing things, which is kind of all we know about him at this point. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I hope so. Um, okay, so now I'm ready. Roll opening credits. Um, are you ready for that? Oh, did that happen? I didn't even write down when that happened. <laughs> yes, so I think we're now into... Because then, yeah, then I wrote Act 1. We're now back to, like, the hippo is explaining the rules of the scale. We get our exposition. And I was kind of disappointed because I thought this kind of wasn't necessary. Maybe the explaining of the scales. But like you said, where, like, we keep revisiting Harrow to find out his motivation, we kind of kept revisiting Tawaret when Mm -hmm. I was like, I know what's happening. You don't need to remind me that she's like, oh, look, it's not working. I'm like, we know it's not working, okay? They didn't do the reconciliation. We're waiting for it. And so, yes, because then I have um, the other refusal of the call is that, so Tawaret says, like, you have to look at your memories. You have to do this. This is what is going to have to happen. Then he says, no, how hard can it be to drive this boat? (laughs) So he thinks that he can somehow get around the scales with some sort of, like, physical action, which is very funny to me because, like, I can't figure out what's physical here and what's astral, and I don't think driving the boat would get them to heaven, but... No, but it is a very Mark response. Yes, yes. And so um, what I have here is that, like, you know, there's the call to adventure, and this is kind of where, like, the two sides of the same coin happen, which is that Mark refuses the call. He does not want to see the memories for a reason we'll find out. And Stephen accepts the call. He is going looking for the memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just thought that was really great that, you know, we get this great dichotomy in their responses. I thought that the exposition that Tuaret did was maybe a little excessive, but also kind of delightful because she was so entertaining. And I think I yeah. took a note that said... Exposition has never been so delightful. Because um, <laughs> it was just fun to hear her talk and to hear about, you know, the kind of distinctions between, she says it's not the afterlife, it's an afterlife. And she references the ancestral plane, which is what we see in Black Panther. Um, mm. And so it was interesting as well that she said, you know, it's been a minute since we had a soul pass through here. So, and, and the the thing that she sets up bas- is basically like, I'm going to weigh your heart against this feather. If you if it's lighter than the feather, you get to go into the field of reeds. If it's heavier than the feather, you're going to get thrown overboard, which to me was so interesting because as we talked about earlier in Egyptian kind of like text and history, it's that Amit eats your heart rather than you getting thrown off the boat. And so I'm kind of wondering why, a why has it been a minute since the souls passed through is has it been since Amit got put into stone and they have, I don't know, an alternative thing. Is Tawarit just kind of filling in since Amit's yes. gone? I, I do have a theory about this. My theory is that that sand used to be water mm. and that when um, Amit <gasps> got turned to stone, the water <sighs> got turned to stone. And so she would eat your heart potentially by eating you, that you would be s- sitting in that water. She's and a crocodile. a crocodile will come and eat your heart out. Ooh, that's a good theory. Yes. And my other idea is that, like, potentially the afterlife you believe in is the afterlife you go to. And that no one really adheres to Egyptian deities anymore. And that, like, you know, 
many other people have converted to Islam or Judaism or whatever. And so that this sort of the Egyptians have kind of just been like twiddling their thumbs and sitting on their hands like, oh, I hope somebody comes through. That's a great theory. I really like that. That makes a lot more sense to me. Who did you have as the the mentor? Um, I wrote very plainly, each other. Oh. <laughs> yes, I think that like what I got from this whole episode is that Stephen was trying so hard to facilitate mm. like this desire to look through the memories and reconcile. And so he's trying to mentor him through that. And what we realized much later is that well, maybe not acting as a mentor, Mark was trying to sort of be a parent to Stephen. Mm-hmm. And a big part of being a parent is protecting your child. Interesting. Um, and so that, like, when he says, like, oh, you know, Stephen, you weren't supposed to see that. That's not what you exist for. You're not supposed to know. You got to live a happy life. That in some ways, Mark's mentorship, while, you know, toxic and misguided, was about having Steven at least get to have a happy life because Mark didn't. I love that. I think I like that better than mine. I said it was to wear it because she is the one who kind of sets up this whole ordeal. She kind of took on the Gandalf sending the dwarves on their quest kind of uh, hobbit vibe to me. Um, yeah. But I do think that, yeah, functionally, Mark and Steven were kind of mentoring each other. I, I had them as allies um, yeah. But. Yeah. I mean, there were definitely some parts where I struggled to identify every single person exactly in this hero's journey. For sure. And I, I do think it's more of a, you know, a framework and it's about where the tension lies rather than, you know, filling out a chart that uh, <laughs> has a bunch I of love charts, libs. though. I yeah. do love charts. Um, let's see. Oh, we did have a retraction to issue from last week. We had mm. said that the gold man was not in the asylum. He is. He is Bingo Man. Goldman is Bingo mm-hmm. Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently he has a name, which is Crawley. Um, Whoa, and weird name. When Mark is, he's refusing this call and he's like, nope, I'm insane. I'm insane. That's it. I'm going to walk in there and Crawley's going to be about to yell bingo. <laughs> I didn't even pick that up. I I do. I always watch with the subtitles and I was also nice. pausing every 30 seconds to write nice. things down. But I did look it up. In the comics, Bertrand Crawley is a homeless man and a friend slash informant of Jake Lockley. Uh-oh. Yeah. Which is not conclusive in any way, shape, or form. Um, I did have an aside that I wanted to make here, which is that we don't often reference the comics, I think, when we talk about the shows. Because I think we think of the movies as kind of their own canon. That, you know, this is not adaptation in the way of, like, you know one-to-one, issue-to-episode, book-to-film, kind of Harry Potter style. Um, This is really just kind of taking a character and their most essential parts and then coming up, taking the same premise and writing a new story that is, you know, fits with film or TV rather than, you know, comics, because the pacing of film and comics are so different. Um, And so it's not necessarily that, like, because something exists away in the comics, that means it's going to exist in the m- movies that way. And I think Marvel actually does a great job of making its films and TV really accessible to people who've never picked up a comic in their life. So usually it doesn't really matter to me how things are in the comics, except when there's this huge mystery and I'm like, where are they getting this guy from and why? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not that he is the same function in this 
thing, but the fact that he is associated with Jake Lockley, I'm just hoping is. I know. I also am curious, like when writers are just taking liberties and it's like, well, we don't want you to like take characters and just pull them out of thin air. Yeah. And so someone's like, oh, what if Steven, you know, because Steven's not exactly how he was in the comic books Mm -hmm. either. And so I wonder if it's just like, oh, this person serves as a great and similar function to Steven that will sort of write it in, but we'll take a character of Jake's because they're all related to Mark. And it's like, well, they are, except in the fact that Jake has been missing for five episodes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fine, but then I almost, I don't know. I don't want to say I wish he wasn't in it, but then I'm like, okay, in the sixth episode, we're just going to pull him out of thin air. I don't know. I don't think I don't think they can bring him in at this point unless it's like the twist and the final final moments of like, oh, shit, we're setting up something else. But I don't know. I agree. I mean, I kind of don't want to see him. He's for a movie or something. I don't care. I hope so. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about about Jake, but. okay, nice. So what did you have for crossing the threshold? I was about to ask you the same question. (laughs) I said the moment that they literally walk out onto the boat. (laughs) Mark says, I'm going to walk through that door and Crawley's going to be playing bingo. And he opens the door and they are on a boat. And he's like, oh shit, this is actually happening. Um, They get to see their heart being weighed against the feather. And I think that them, there are many, many doors that they walk through in the next scene as well. These doors to memories um, which I think you could also make an argument is crossing a threshold. But to me, the walking out onto the boat was the moment that Mark accepted, okay, this might actually be a journey that I have to go on. I cannot take refuge in the idea that I'm crazy. I There's the boat, there's the sand, there's the scales. I have to go on this journey. Yes, and I I think I maybe like that more than what I wrote, but I left what I wrote just so we'd have something to discuss. Um, Because another part of the hero's journey is that it's written in a circle. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like I said, you start with your top everyday ordinary world. And at the very bottom, it's the ordeal, the death, and the rebirth. And then um, you come back around from it. Um, And so the top, like I said, is the ordinary world. The bottom is the special world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so five is the crossing of the threshold. And I think you saying that the boat and the acceptance of the boat is the crossing of the threshold just works really well mm-hmm. for this purpose. I actually had that the crossing of the threshold, I have mine kind of come a little sooner. Mine is more crossing of the proverbial threshold, mm. which is that like they had been opening and closing these doors, but they were for the most part kind of accepting them. And so for me, that was kind of just like, oh, we're doing this. But I had that the crossing of the threshold is when Stephen sees Mark's brother die. And so I don't want to get too much into it because there is plenty of stuff that happens before that. Yeah. But to me, that was like when the walls came tumbling down, they they stepped into the brave new world of trauma. Yes. And I, I think that Stephen and Mark are kind of on their own journeys here as well. Mm-hmm. And we both identify that they each have an ordeal that they go through later on in the episode. And I do think that they each kind of have their own threshold. Like, I think that crossing the threshold on the boat is maybe Mark's moment of realizing, okay, I'm on this journey. But Stephen, up till that point, has kind of already been on board. Like, he hasn't refused the call yet. Because for him, this is the ordinary world. Like, this is all he knows. 
he's not going into Hera's office yet. Mm-hmm. All he knows is that Mark has found him in a sarcophagus and he was shot in Egypt and this is what's happening to him. And so I think that he he crosses a threshold of his own when he sees Mark's brother die and he realizes like, oh, this might be this might be more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Okay, so let's see. What do I have here on my order of things? Where did you mark your act two? I also marked my act two as the seeing of the brother's death because to mm. me, all it content, just opening the doors to all the memories was still part of that every day where it's like in this universe where we're just trying to figure out how to get through the afterlife. And every day you open a door and you reconcile memory and you open a door and you reconcile memory. And that the critical door with the memory was the brother's death. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's kind of this intermediary scene that I had kind of Mm -hmm. blocked out, which was this kind of like, I had it as the beginning of Act 2, the kind of first look at what this whole next part was going to be, which Mm was... um, they, yeah, they get glimpses of these different memories. And the first ones are all ones that they both remember. So you have Mark beating up the jackal in the museum bathroom. You have the sky turning with Khonshu. So the first one was Mark in the suit. The second one was Steven in the suit. Mm-hmm. Um, they both get to see each other's powers. And then there's people standing by a car. And we will return to this memory later. And it kind of bookends this whole experience. Um, but this is the first memory that Mark remembers, but Steven doesn't. And I wrote, they have to reconcile their memories so they're not split. And I was like, yes. they both need to be re- able to remember everything. Yes. And I was annoyed about this because I was like, 20 minutes later, I was like, no, Stephen does remember this. He doesn't remember its significance, but he does remember the street. And so I was like, Stephen, don't play dumb with me. Yeah. What's well, that street? I think I got lost on it. <laughs> well, and I think I think he, what he was asking was like, why is this here? Like among all of these like important memories, like why, what does this mean to you? Because I just thought I ended up here. Oh, th- this, uh, this is why I brought this up. The other scene, major scene before they start chasing this little boy is um, they end up in a cafeteria full of dead people. Mm-hmm. And it is all the people that Mark has killed as Moon Knight. And I think this is Steven's moment of almost wanting to refuse the call where he's like, yes, oh, you did this. I, I we, we did this. Um, and I think he up until this point has not necessarily Mark, thought Mark is a good dude, but hasn't thought that he has killed an entire cafeteria's worth of human beings. Yes. Yes. OK, so then we end up with um, Mark and his brother Um it's at someone's birthday. They're talking about cake. Brother's drawing a goldfish with one fin. So all of these like little. I miss that. Yeah. And Mark's teasing his brother because the goldfish only has one fin. And I'm like, but Steven is going to have a goldfish with one fin. And he's going to be obsessed with the fact that it only has one fin. And he's going to bother the girl at the pet store. And maybe it's even Mark who's going down to the pet store and making sure that the fish has one fin so that it's there for Steven. Yeah. Um, so all of these little things. He says later's gators, which is what Steven always says to his mom on the phone. And then, yeah, they walk through this forest and Steven steps on a bird skeleton that looks just like Khonshu. And we get mm-hmm. some little foreshadowing. And yeah, but then that also made me wonder, is Khonshu real then? Because has he originated from this traumatic memory as well? I don't know. I don't know. It's all Just a question. About, yeah. Then they go into a cave tunnel, which I don't think is technically the approach to the inmost cave, although I did write that down as, hmm, literal cave. Yeah. It did seem like a weird choice to me. Like, it seemed oddly, like, 
mythical and ancient and epic in a way because I was like, are we trying to have some sort of like, you know, once you exit the cave, you can never see it again? What what is that phrase? What's the one where once you once the cave, once the (laughs) shadows in the cave have been revealed, the allegory of the cave, Plato. Yeah. Thank you, Plato. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that it's uh, knowledge that you can't unlearn. Right, and so yeah, Stephen's about to learn it, and he will never be able to unlearn it. He'll never be able to unlearn it. Yeah, and I think it's also, I I don't even know if Stephen realized it at this point, but the two brothers are playing characters from the Stephen Grant movie, which is just heartbreaking. And then also, we live in a place where there's flash floods, and so as soon as they look at the cave and it's raining, I'm like, oh, I know exactly what's about to happen here. Yeah. Um, and it is just this heart-wrenching scene that we get where Stephen's calling for them to get out. Mark is still in the hospital. He has not followed uh, Stephen here, and he is running down hallways, and we get these cuts between Mark running down the hallways and Stephen running through the cave. And the interplay of those two things lines up in a way that you can almost believe that this cave scene is all happening in Mark's head and that the real Mark is running through a hospital. Mm-hmm. And just having this flashback as he is physically present in the hospital. Or yeah. maybe there's a Stephen who's physically present in this memory. Yeah. One or the other. But you could believe it both ways. Yeah. And so they walk into this cave and we don't see anything. Um, but I was sobbing at this point um, because the cave is filling up with water so quickly. And the mom has for some reason made a point to say, take care of your brother. Yeah. Um, when presumably he's only like two years older. Yeah, and did you notice that in the next birthday that we get, there's only nine candles on the cake. So Mark yeah, so is he's eight. maximum eight years old at this point and has been put in charge of his brother. Yes, and so his brother does die in that cave. And we sort of see in this really great visual adaptation, like Stephen continuing to run up the stairs to see another level of this trauma to be like, Okay, not only is the brother dead, now the mom is at the funeral having a meltdown. She hates you. She blames you. You run up the stairs, you're at your birthday, and your mom will not come downstairs. She hates you. Yeah. Then, you know, you run up the stairs, you're having a big fight with your dad. Dad, why don't you protect me? Dad doesn't know what to do. Dad also had a son die, but loves his wife, but is maybe mad at the son, but not that mad at the son. Yeah. And... That was just horrible. And at some point, Mark gets into the rooms and is saying, like, Stephen, don't go up there, don't go up there, don't go up yes. there. Because Stephen realizes, or Mark realizes that, unfortunately, the brother's death is not the the worst thing that's ever happened to Stephen or to Mark. Like, Yeah. And this was so powerful to me. So this, I marked, you know, this is act two. We've got tests, allies, and enemy. We're, we're finding out who those people are. The mom is clearly an enemy. The dad may or may not be an ally, not a very good one. No. And yeah, I wrote all... Mothers, Brothers, and Breakdowns, Oh My. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the title of this episode. Yeah. Yeah, this... So I, I had a couple things to say about this. One, I just... Yeah, this... The imagery of kind of old Mark chasing old Stephen chasing young Mark up this, like, spiraling stair. And it's just you keep getting layers of, oh, my God, there's something worse. Oh, my God, there's something worse. Because every single time Mark is saying, Stephen, don't go. Stephen, he says, come on, buddy. Like, you're not supposed to see this. Like, come on. Like, get out of here. And 
every time Stephen sees something new, Mark is still saying that. And it just gives you this building, building, like crescendoing sense of, oh my God, what is at the top of the stairs? Um, such good tension being built here. Um, also, I just wanted to take a pause and talk about the the first scene that we get, which is the Shiva, which is the, um, it's a like Jun- Jewish morning tradition, morning with a U. And this to me was, I lost it because, you know, up till this point, you know, we've seen Mark with his Star of David necklace, but we haven't really gotten an indication that he has much to do with his Jewish identity. But we see this shot through a door. Mark's about to go in. And the first thing I saw was a man with wearing a kippah or a yarmulke. And this was just instantly recognizable to me. The way people were sitting, you know, we've got an old man with a hat and a tali, which is a prayer shawl. And then you've got the mirrors covered. And this is a practice. Um, so a shiva is like the first week of mourning after a funeral. Shiva means seven, seven days. And during that time, your kind of community comes together and takes care of you. They bring you food. Um, you're not supposed to basically be responsible for taking care of yourself at all. And one of the things that you do is cover the mirrors or people cover the mirrors for you so that you don't have to even look at your own reflection. And I thought this was so powerful and symbolic because Stephen is always, or Mark is always looking at his reflection because his reflection is looking back at him. And this is like pre-split, pre-Mark and Stephen at the very beginning of this trauma and the mirrors are not accessible to him. He doesn't have that refuge yet. Um, and I just, I loved the symbolism of it. It was so moving to me. Um, I just, I thought they did a beautiful job with that scene. Today's episode was also brought to you by Friends of Friends Recording. They have a recording studio in Humboldt Park in Chicago, and they have a, you know, full ISO control room Um, You know, multiple booths, kitchen and lounge, and uh, in-house engineer, uh, Brock, who mixes and masters these episodes, can help you mix and master uh, your own shows. So uh, please feel free to reach out to them if you need a recording space or if you need an audio engineer. Um, You can find them at friendsoffriendsrecording.com, and you can also find them on uh, Instagram at friends of friends recording. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that was really, really interesting. And I, I feel like I haven't seen that many depictions of Shiva on TV, really. No, the only one I can think of recently is Shiva Baby, which is a movie. That's <laughs> like a. I was, I was gonna say, I actually think there is another comedy movie from like five years ago that has like a weird ensemble cast, but I can't remember what it was. Like, and I think Steve Carell was in it. I'm trying to remember. So funny. I don't know if I saw that. Shiva Baby is a great movie, though. I, oh, I really? That's it, the one yeah. with Rachel Sennett, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think I saw a tweet today that said like. You know, Rachel Senate and Oscar Isaac are honorary members of the community. Do not at me. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> agreed. Okay. So, yes, we get to the very top of the stairs. Uh, Mark tackles Stephen and won't let him follow into young Mark's room. I, I, All I could think was, like, what happened in that room? I almost wondered if he tried to commit suicide. Um, that yeah. was kind of my first thought. Yeah. Um. But then 
he tackles him. They end up outside. And Stephen's first question is, why are you remembering her like that? That's not what she was like. And so for Mark, this whole journey is about trying to keep Stephen from the truth, but also reveal the truth to him. And for Stephen, it's about why are my memories of my mother so different from Mark's memories of our mother? And we saw this foreshadowed in episode two, was it episode episode one or two, where he's talking to Layla. She comes into the apartment and he says that he got the flat from his mom and she says, you're talking to your mom? And that, after watching this episode, that comment by Layla just hits so much harder. Like, of course Mark wasn't talking to his mother. Of course he wasn't. And she had already died at that point, yes, too. And he had never even told her that she died because yeah. they were so far removed that. Yeah. But he does go to her Shiva, which means that he at some point didn't tell Layla where he was going, mm-hmm. whether wherever their marriage stood. He yeah. went back to Chicago and didn't speak of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I had, I was also wondering at that moment that we see him return. I was trying to look and see if he was wearing his wedding ring and I couldn't catch it, but yeah, I was wondering. And then he said that was only two months ago. And I was like, oh, so he and Layla were married and potentially separated and we still also don't know why he was asking her for a divorce. Like, at what point Conchu started threatening her? Yeah. I feel like we have a lot more questions still to to answer. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So anyway, this question for Stephen, you know, his big ordeal at the end will be accepting that his mother is dead. And so that this is the thing he is focused on right now. Not so much what happened in that room, but why are you remembering our mother like that? Oh, okay. So... Yeah, the dad. His name's Elias. Gotta love it. Good old Jewish name. Mm-hmm. He's uh, He doesn't want Mark to leave. Now we get an older Mark. So whatever has happened in that upstairs bedroom has already happened. We've got a teenage Mark leaving. Um, Mark tackles Stephen. They end up in sand. And my first thought was, oh my God, they fell off the boat. Yeah. <laughs> but no, they're in another memory in Egypt uh, when mm-hmm. Mark is a mercenary. And I said, is this when Layla's dad was killed? And yes, yes, it was. Yes. And the kind of sad or strange thing to me, I mean, I know this is about Mark, but we didn't even really, I didn't see anyone that looked like Layla's dad. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't linger on anyone. We didn't get any indication that there was a guy there. I think they did. Because Stephen said, is that Dr. Elfuli? And it kind of focused on him. And he had this pink scarf with the scarabs that Harrow said that. Oh, dang. I must have been looking at my phone. (sighs) I have to rewatch it. I do have to rewatch it. But they did They did linger on him for a moment. And this was interesting, too, because we kind of skipped everything that happened in between. And Mark has to deliver in dialogue kind of the... Because, you know, up till this point, it hasn't really mattered what's happened between Mark's birthdays um, because the, the pivotal memories are the birthdays. But this is the first time that we have someone narrating what happened in between. And Mark says um, that, you know, they don't really... You know, you don't have a lot of options after you go AWOL from the military in a fugue state, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting line because we don't see any of those memories. And mm-hmm. fugue state suggests that that has been the diagnosis of Mark having these multiple personalities. But Stephen doesn't remember that. Mark has to tell him that. So who was he? Was he Jake? Yes. And so is Jake basically what Mark is to Stephen? That Mark is the one who, you know, gets beaten so that Stephen can have this happy childhood or illusion of the happy childhood. 
And then Jake is the one who has to kill people in the military so that Mark can have the illusion of not being a murderer. Yes, even though Mark has killed a lot of people. Yeah, he has. But he sort of finds ways to justify it where I wonder if, yeah, if Jake is the more belligerent one. Yeah. Because it doesn't sound like he was honorably discharged from the military. Yeah. Uh, So, yes, he becomes a mercenary. Um, Yes, and so this is where Mark actually does try to kill himself. Yes. We see that, like, Mark has had an immensely difficult life, has had a really hard time reintegrating and living his life. And, yeah, the thing that I've been wondering, is it inevitable, which is that, like, when Mark thinks of freedom is that the release of death yeah and so at like you know his weakest moment he believes that he wants to die which is also when Kanchu begins to offer that he can be his moon knight mm-hmm. and steven very astutely says like Kanchu is manipulating you yeah. like you were not in a good place and you've now been occupied Mm-hmm. by this other more vicious character. I thought that was so just the way that Steven was able to kind of be like a brother to Mark in that moment and like give him this outside perspective of like no, you were you were being manipulated it was so touching and this scene also really was interesting to me because when Mark in the last episode explained to Layla what happened here He said that he was supposed to have died that night and he didn't. And I was left with the impression that he was shot. He's bleeding out. Yes. That he was actively dying, not by his own hand, and that Khonshu like rescued him from certain death. And instead, what happened is that Mark was going to kill himself and Khonshu convinced him not to. Um, Yeah. and, And yet, even in this moment, Kanshu says, do you want death or do you want life? And Mark says, I don't know. And I wrote, no, you don't, buddy. It's kind of your thing. Yeah. And yeah, Kanshu also says, your mind, I feel it, fractured, broken, um, which kind of answers Harrow's question of, you know, Mm -hmm. were you already broken or, you know, did he break you or did he pick you because you were already broken? And he was already broken and Kanshu took advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah. and Stephen calls him a sneaky old vulture, which I <laughs> I do love. Stephen always yeah. with the humor. Yeah, and so then I wrote here um, because every single time we've gone through a memory or tried to figure out what's happening, Mark has still been denying the call. You know, mm-hmm. don't look at that. Don't look at that. Don't go there. Don't go in that room. Don't look, look at that. And here is the point where we sort of step back. We get back into the hospital and Mark says, I'll tell you everything, but don't make me go back there. Yeah. And so he's trying to, like, negotiate. Like, he's come to accept the terms, but can't accept the method. Yeah. Because he's like, I literally can't relive that. Like, I've created these multiple personalities to avoid reliving these situations. And, I mean, we'll find out in a moment, but this, the thing that Mark doesn't want to go back, I don't even know if it's Mark doesn't want to go back there so much as he doesn't want Stephen to know yes. that he's not real. Because Stephen, the whole point of him is that he thinks he's a real person. And this would be the moment where that illusion is shattered. Um, yeah, this is, oh, oh, it gives me goosebumps. It's all so good. Um, before we get there, I just want to say briefly also that 
you know, they have just kind of hashed out, okay, Khonshu manipulated um, Mark into becoming his avatar. They get back on the boat. There's Harrow is doing something in the background. We just, all we see of it is there's like purple light coming down from the sky. There's monkeys screeching uh, to where it says, you know, there's unbalanced souls are being judged before their time. So clearly something is happening. Like this is not happening in a split second. Like Mm -hmm. Harrow is continuing to go ahead with his plan as this is going on. Um, Mm -hmm. But this is when Steven realizes we have to go back. And he accepts, because she's like, well, I can send you back, but your body has a bullet hole in it. You're just going to die. You can't heal. And so they're like, can you get a message to Layla so she can free Khonshu? And to where it's like, well, are you sure? Like, you seemed like you really wanted to get away from Khonshu. And now you're willing to become his avatar again. And it's like, once again, Khonshu has trapped them in this place of they have no choice but die or become his avatar. And yet this time it's Steven who says, it doesn't matter. We have to do it. Yeah. Um, and they're they're on the same page. They both want this rather than Steven saying, oh, well, you know, I'm free. You're, you're free. Get out of here. Um, they've really reconciled at least as people, even though we haven't quite gotten to the difficult moment yet. The inmost cave, one might say. Mm-hmm. I considered the bedroom, the inmost cave, the true challenge of showing Stephen where he began. And Mark starts freaking out and he says, you can't make me, you can't make me, you can't make me. And he's slapping his face. And um, yeah, he snaps to in Harrow's office once again. And I do think in this moment, I was like, I feel like this is a refuge in Mark's head, that this is an escape valve that Mark does not want to face this memory and he snaps himself back to oh no this is all an illusion like you know you're you're safe you're just in this doctor's office like it's okay there's no stakes here yeah so what did you have for the ordeal so i had it being this moment of showing steven the truth um i had it starting kind of in Hera's office Harrow asks, do you think you created Stephen to hide from all Mm -hmm. the awful things you feel you've done in your life? Or do you think Stephen created Mark to punish the world for what your mother did to you? And this kind of sets up this question of like, which which truth are you going to pick? Are you going to accept that you created Stephen? We see a reflection in the water glass of Mark looking at himself. And I'm like, is he looking at Stephen? I can't tell. Yeah. Um, It almost seemed like he was looking for Stephen. Yeah. But like couldn't find him. Couldn't find him. Yeah. Um, but yes, then he ends up back in his bedroom. Is this also what you marked as your ordeal? Yes, I I mean, I have it um, in just about two seconds, mm-hmm. which is that when I, the ordeal to me is Stephen realizes he is the fake one. Yeah, I so I kind of split up the ordeal and I had Mark's ordeal and then Stephen's ordeal. And mm-hmm. so for me, both ordeals began in Harrow's office. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Mark and then we get this amazing scene where so... Steve, there's so many little details. So Stephen, like, or Mark, because he's Mark right now, little Mark, knocks um, Dr. Grant action figure off his desk. And then he sits down next to a mirror because the mirrors are no longer covered. He is next to a mirror, full body mirror. You see him in the mirror and you see him as himself. And then it cuts to old Mark and you don't see old Stephen. And then old Stephen peels out from behind Mark as if he is literally like an amoeba budding off of him. The uh-huh. way they shot that was so good. And then over the course of this scene, 
older Stephen slowly moves forward until he's in front of older Mark and older Mark kind of recedes into the background behind older Stephen. And just the kind of switching of their positions was just the visual of it was so, oh, so well done um, yeah. in this scene. But yes, then we basically see little Mark, you know, he's, the mom is trying to come in and beat him. Um, he's whispering, it's not my mom. It's not my mom. It's not my mom. This is kind of the the core trauma as he cannot accept that this is his mother, um, which is why I had Stephen's ordeal being like facing the truth about his mother, um, even more so than the truth about himself. Um, and then, yeah, he says, when danger is near, Stephen Grant has no fear. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. He's he goes into the eyes rolled back dimension. Yes. The um, boy. The boy does. And then as young Stephen, he says, bloody hell, look at the state of this place. Better sort it out before mom sees it. And then you see older Stephen in the mirror mumbling along to these words because these yes, are the first words. he remembers words it. He yes. remembers speaking. And then he, and then, yeah, Stephen says, when danger is near, Stephen Grant has no fear. He reads it off the poster, the movie poster, and he says, you made me up. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, Mark takes Stephen out of the room and says, you do not need to see that. You're not meant to see that. That's the whole point of you. Mm-hmm. which sums it up just <sighs> yes i actually see the you being fake versus having a bad mom in the reverse mm. of steven's problems i think steven's problem is that he is the fake one and he's unwilling to accept it and the mom being evil is the nail in the coffin that mm. he's the fake one that like there's no you know you could it's maybe he said, he said, on who's the real one. Yeah. You know, I have a life, you have a life. But, like, when you have this, like, third party, I don't know, like, tether, there is only one real mom. The mom doesn't associate and have a Stephen mom. Yeah. It's that Stephen perceived it differently. And so identifying that the mom is actually evil, and not only that, she's dead, is Stephen Snell in the coffin that's, like... I'm fake. I was never real. I was based off a movie poster and I don't even have a mother. Yeah. Yeah. We get this Mark. Stephen punches Mark in the face, which is a nice reversal of their little fight club moment. (laughs) Uh And they they have this argument that is like really powerful. Stephen says, I thought I was the original. And Mark says, you got to live a happy, simple, normal life, Um, which, yeah, very much felt like kind of an older sibling type of vibe, like the older sibling who takes the brunt of the punishment. Um, Mm -hmm. And... Stephen Mark pretty much says like you know he has a you can't handle the truth kind of moment before he drops this bomb that that yeah. their mother is dead and yeah this is when Stephen breaks and he says you know um or Mark tells him you know I I couldn't go back for the shiva Stephen breaks and says let me out let me out let me out let me out he has his same moment that Mark just had of like slapping himself and being like this you know I I can't deal with this and then Stephen snaps to in Harrow's office. Which to me yes. is the and he's of. very funny in Harrow's office. Oh, I wrote down a bunch of jokes. He's hilarious. The first thing he does is throw his water into Harrow's face, which I was like, this is again an amazing instant visual detail that shows us, like, yep, this is Steven. This is not Mark who's waking up here. Yeah. yeah. He's clumsy. He's reactionary. He oh, sorry. And I'm then this is, sorry. this is the first time that he's seen Arthur Harrow as the um psychiatrist and mm-hmm. so he goes like mm, mustache it's very ned flanders <laughs> and i love in this universe steven has somehow seen the simpsons that he spent enough time in the real world that he knows real world references 
And then Arthur Harrow is continuing to ask him questions, you know. Oh, I thought I'd never speak to you again. And what are you doing here? And, you know, what's the problem? And are you ready to come to terms with this? And then he goes, hmm, nosy. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. So funny. And I wondered when Arthur Harrow said I didn't think I would see you again, it made me wonder if he's referring to the time that they have met in the last couple of weeks, like in London and in Egypt, or if this is, you know, Mark's projection of his childhood psychiatrist and that, you know, we did skip over a ton of information such as, okay, you know, Mark was flashing back between Stephen and himself as a child, but by the time he met Layla, he quote unquote had it under control. And it raises the question of, you know, And then it's his mom's death two months ago that breaks the wall between them again. And it makes me wonder, you know, did he, is he still hiding all these memories of of visiting a psychiatrist as a kid? Or, this thought just occurred to me, did Khonshu fix that for him? Because Mark does Mm. say that Khonshu and I had a deal and it was contingent upon you not interfering. And I thought he was speaking from Khonshu's perspective of, Conchu would revive me if I promised Stephen wouldn't interfere. But I'm wondering if Mark kind of made this deal. I mean, we saw the deal happen and maybe it was yes. just in his head that this happened, but that he was like, well, I'll, you know, live if I'm fully Mark and not Stephen. And that it was Conchu somehow repressing them. I don't know. That just occurred to me. Yeah. No, I think that's really interesting. My only thing is that I'm like, but does Mark really want to be himself? That's, yeah, that I don't know. You and know it, what I mean? That, Except that he doesn't want Stephen to suffer or lose his innocence. And so maybe he felt like if he's being conscious avatar and he's having to kill people, he doesn't want Stephen waking up with blood on his hands. That's true. That's true. Yes. And so then Stephen continues to talk to Harrow about the mother and Harrow says, like, she's dead. And Stephen continues to say, like, that's not true. That's not true. I just talked to her. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't talk some... to her. He just leaves her voicemails. Yes. And so for some reason, Harrow indulges this mm-hmm. and says, like, I'll call her. And so that's what's making me think maybe this isn't Harrow's projection. Maybe this is Mark's projection. Mm. Because, like, Mark would be the one that would want to protect Stephen and indulge the call. Yeah. Not our evil maniac. Right. And so then Harrow doesn't seem to have any investment in this whatsoever. Right. Like, why does, right. what, how does it affect him? If right. Mark, and he doesn't care if Stephen has a breakdown. No. You know what I mean? That's, he's just he's shot just, them both. Like, as far as he yes. concerns, concerned, their hearts can get eaten. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so then Stephen says, don't call her. She screens calls. She won't answer. She's afraid of telesales people. (laughs) (laughs) Which I love because clearly this is what he has told himself to justify why she's not answering the phone. Oh, it's so sad. Yes. So Stephen is crying. He takes the phone and this is kind of his moment of he, he can't face, he knows he can't face picking up the phone and and hearing that there's nothing on the other end. And he says, he's crying. He says, my mom is dead. And we hear the dial tone. Um, and it's like super quiet and kind of blends with the music. But I thought it was a nice touch. And that is like his moment of 
acceptance. And yeah, I, I had this as his ordeal. Mm-hmm. And then we do get our reward, I guess. They do, they do reconcile. Yeah. From this moment. They get back outside on the boat. They weigh the souls again. And, you know, Tawaret thinks the souls aren't going to balance. And then they do. Well, first, is it first we end up at the, I don't even, I didn't write down whether they end up on the boat first again, or if they just go straight to this kind of like last memory, which is the first memory that Stephen didn't Mm. recognize. Yes, Um, I might have skipped that. And there's, I I did write their reward is kind of their catharsis and reconciliation. Um, It's the car scene. Mark is standing by a car. His dad is at the mom's shiva looking through the window, seeing Mark there standing, drinking, and the dad kind of gestures for him to come in, and Mark shakes his head and walks away. Um, and I said, he's wearing his kippah, though, or his yarmulke. Yeah. And um, he says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give her the satisfaction. He's crying. He takes his yarmulke off, and he pounds it into the pavement. And then he says, I'm so sorry. And he holds it to his chest and kind of, like, rocks there. And I did have one note for the for the directors. If you drop a kippa on the ground, the correct response is to kiss it, not hug it. Just, just Good for the to future. Know. Good to know. Just yes. For the yes. Um, Thank you for the information. And in this moment, oh, he kind of looks up and Stephen, older, you know, Stephen, who's watching his memories, is right in front of him. And I wrote, can he see Stephen? But no, what's about to happen is that he goes into the eyes rolled back dimension. Mm-hmm. And then Stephen says, where am I? And he immediately calls the mom. Immediately calls the mom. This is his first act as adult Stephen to call the mother. And I just had the thought of this is Stephen protecting Mark rather than Mark protecting Stephen. The first time that the wall was broken between them or that Stephen was invented, Mark was trying to keep Stephen's innocence and save him from physical pain. And this time... It is Stephen breaking through to save Mark from the emotional pain of processing his mother's death. Which, God, I love Stephen. He's such a good guy. I know. They work so well together. So then Mark... Okay, so now we go back to the boat? No, you keep talking. Oh, sorry. I I had a lot to say. Just that Mark... (laughs) Mark kind of spells it out for us. He says, this was the moment that brought... Where our lives started bleeding into each other two months ago. Um, And I was like, whoa, so recently? interesting yeah and i don't i'm so curious if this is around the same time that he sent divorce papers to layla that was after i don't really know but then we have this moment and this i think is the true reward and true reconciliation is that steven says it wasn't your fault you were just a child and steven and mark finally forgives himself for his brother's death yes steven says to mark what his mother would have never said Mm-hmm. He didn't even need to call her on the phone. He just had to hear it from himself. Okay, now we go back to the boat. Now we're in Act 3. <laughs> the return to literal life. This is the road back to life and to Layla. Uh, the, they have stopped outside of the gates of Osiris, and the gates are closed because the scales never balance. There is something left that is not finished. And I kept thinking it's Jake. Yeah, I did too. Um, so then we get a nice little fight scene. Our first and only one of the episode, I think. 
Yeah. Um, it's the people that Mark killed. Um, he starts naming the places that he killed them, just like he did in the cafeteria. And he tells Stephen to hide so that he can fight them because he's being a big older brother again. Um, but then Stephen's not going to hide. He grabs the steering wheel. He's trying to steer the boat just like Mark suggested. Yeah. And then Mark gets hit the fuck in the head. Yeah. I don't know if you wrote that I got, down. I wrote, Mark gets whacked. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have very quickly this moment that I called the resurrection, which I said wrote, Mark and Stephen are one. Stephen says, Mark, you've got this. But if I'm you, that means I've got this too. And it's this great callback to one of, I think, the, I'm not going to say the only good lines from episode four, because there were some, but there is a moment where Mark says, or Stephen and Mark are arguing in the tent outside of the dig site. And Mark's like, you know, I can help you. And Stephen's like, well, same body, isn't it? Like, whatever you can do, I can do muscle memory and all that. And yeah, and now it's like, oh, no, that's that's bearing fruit. Like, we are having yeah. Stephen access Mark's memories and fighting skills. And he goes ape <laughs> and he just starts wailing on these zombies. Yeah, because we've seen him lose the bite fight to the jackal. Yeah. We also saw him get stabbed through the chest at the jousting. Yes. Take the body, take the take body, take the body, take the body. Um, and this time he is holding his own and he still makes a fucking cricket joke while he does it. So it's like he's uh-huh. he is still Steven, but he can fight. Yes, I wrote that um was the other half of the acceptance of the call. Mm-hmm. Because Mark had accepted that like they need to reconcile their identities. And though Steven had kind of already accepted that, he needed to learn how to function with that you know what I mean that's kind of the road back like once you've left the underworld Mm -hmm. how do you bring it back to the ordinary world right and this is Stephen trying to learn to live with Mark yeah and that doesn't last long it does not last long it is very short-lived Mark gets grabbed and I thought that he was going to go overboard and then Stephen falls overboard And Mark is calling for him and telling him to run after the boat. And Stephen is just turned into sand. And Mark is yelling, stop the boat, stop the boat, stop the boat. And then the scales balance. And we realize that the thing that has been irreconcilable is the fact that there are two souls in one body. And it's so heartbreaking and... I I was stunned. I did not know what to do with that because you could also tell in that moment that Mark was like, it should have been me. Yes, I wrote um, Mark gets what he wants, which like if this whole time he's wanted to one, like, you know, stop dissociating, be normal, mm-hmm. have one identity, but two, be dead. Yeah. You know what I mean? This whole time he's like been living with the fact that he hates his life and that the only way he can get through it is by being dissociative. And so this is it. This is the end of his mortal toil. And he's finally reached eternal happiness. And I think this is where in the hero's journey, let me try to see um, what that section was called again. Is it the refusal of the return? The refusal of the return. Yes. That once you get what you want, you realize it was not what you wanted yes and i think that's where we end because you know the the 12th step of this kind of simplified hero's journey is the return with the elixir but we don't get that we don't have a return 
Instead, what we get is Marcus suddenly, very suddenly, standing in the field of reeds. He's achieved paradise, which I guess could be considered... I mean, it's not a return, though. He's still he's still in the underworld. Um, he's not made it back yet. And Right, right. That's a good point. Yeah. But, but it, is a, it is a return to some sort of peace, or if you're looking at kind of the ordinary world being not Harrow's office, but this initial flashback scene of the moment that the brother is dying and the mom is saying, it's all your fault. If the ordinary world is his childhood being just one person, then he has returned there. Um, but I wrote, at what cost? You know, what has he lost? And yeah, he's there. And and this, I thought, was such an amazing episode. I mean, you said a really great thing when the first time we were talking about, like, what makes a good episode of television. And you said a good episode of TV has to be um, self-propelling, self-contained, and independently entertaining, I think was the way you said it. And mm, I thought <laughs> it stuck with me. I've, I've repeated that to a couple people. And I think that this really struck me because it was all of those things and it was self-contained. This was a complete arc. It had a beginning, a middle, yes. and an end. It had this incredible journey that this character went on. And yet we are still not done with the entire story. And I think that this is such a good example of how TV works so differently than film and that you have these kind of miniature plots that are nested within this larger plot and this kind of like looping cyclical motion, like a wheel rolling. And uh, yeah, yeah, just that like, did I finally get my bottle episode? Is the bottle episode a boat episode? I think the bottle episode is the boat episode. And it was so good because it's like, well, we're obviously not done. Like the whole motivating factor for him this whole time has been, I ha- Layla's still out there. I have to get back to Layla. That's that part of the plot's not done, and yet yeah. this kind of subplot has wrapped up in such a like incredible way, and yet in a way that still gives us hope that maybe Stephen can come back. I know. Do you think he? I will? know. I, I think I said this. I want to call it off mic. <laughs> we were on mic because we're on Zoom. Um, but I think it was before the pod, which mm-hmm. is that I have a theory about how Stephen might still exist. Did I say that on the pod yet? I think you just said it to me. Let's hear it. Yes. Okay. So um, my new theory is that with the multiverse of madness that we're, we're about to be released. Oh, into yes. Because sort of, I had said there goes our variant theory and you were correcting me. So, yes. Yeah, so I'm hoping that um, even if Steven is dead in this universe, in this timeline, um, that while he is stuck in the sand realm, um, that Mark in, you know, one day before the Multiverse of Madness is going to realize that, you know, he didn't get his elixir, the thing he wanted the whole time, which was to be normal and be singular, is actually that he loved his alternate self that Mm -hmm. has protected him all these years and that he is going to go on the hunt in the multiverse looking for the Mark Spector who is permanently Stephen Grant. I think that would be amazing. Not only because we would get two Oscar Isaacs permanently, uh, but also just because, yeah, I mean, I think that what we have seen in this episode is that, you know, Mark thought that he was the one protecting Stephen, but the reality is they've been protecting each other and yeah. they are such a good team. And 
it is heartbreaking to think of Mark all alone. And I I think that this is like the classic dichotomy between what <laughs> not between um good hot and, and hot smart or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the classic dichotomy between the other classic dichotomy between um what a character thinks they want and what they really need. And what Mark thinks he wants is A, to either like go back to before his brother died and be normal or B, die. And now he has been given both of those things and he realizes that what he thought he wanted is not at all what he needs. What he needs is to be at peace with Stephen and to love Stephen as a twin the way that Tawarat said they were, you know? Yeah. I don't know where that puts Layla. Yeah, I know. She, maybe I mean, she, maybe your real wife was the alter ego <laughs> you had the whole time. Well, I, I just know. mean, I mean, she likes both of them, so I don't know if it would be a Ooh, problem for her. Oh my gosh. A little threes company. Just just putting it out there. I don't know if this she'd be my husband to it. and my <laughs> and boyfriend. my boyfriend. <laughs> These are my husbands. They share the same body, but I know they're two people. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yeah, so wow. what do you think is going to happen either in the sixth episode or after this? How do you see this going? I, gosh, okay. Where is Duchamp? Who is Duchamp? His is name Duchamp? was on Mark's phone. And yes, it could have been an Easter egg because Frenchie Duchamp is a character in the comics who is... Frenchie? His name is Frenchie, yeah. Okay. Um, who is... The classic real name. Yeah. It's a nickname. It's like in quotes, <laughs> Frenchie. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was like... <laughs> um, and he is someone who I believe is like a mercenary as well. And or his driver. I think it depends on the comics. He gets repurposed. But yes, it could just be for the fans. But it's one of those things where it's like, why not just make all the calls from Layla? Why Why bother putting another name in there? So clearly, it makes me think that, you know, this is someone in Mark's life at the very least. Do I think we'll see him in episode six or have to wait till a movie? I'm not entirely sure anymore because I do think it's been long enough since episode one that people who aren't us probably have forgotten that there was one line on a phone that you saw for 0.2 seconds that had a name on it and I don't think yeah. it's going to be like a big oh my god it's Duchamp I think people are going to be like who um, so I do think yeah. they're, they're just that's just an easter egg that might linger um, into the future yeah only for us who watched each episode four times yeah <laughs> and that it'll be one of those things where they'll introduce him in his own you know little intro package in a movie and then people will be able to make YouTube videos about hey remember in that first episode of Moon Knight we saw his name on a cell phone um, but yeah, next week, I don't know. I mean, Mark has to get back to Layla. Um, they have to stop Harrow. They maybe have to deal with Jake or maybe they just leave him be, but I really don't know. I, I feel kind of stumped because this was such a compact little bottle episode and I loved it so much. And I kind of wish we could just get another one. Mm-hmm. Not that I not that this episode hasn't like given me faith that they can stick the landing. I I really think they can, but I I truly don't. I know, know I what don't. We're gonna see next week. I don't want to go back to Egypt. You know yeah. what I mean? I don't want to go back and get caught in the like. These are the avatars. These are the gods that are in rocks. You're gonna have to go put this thing and this other thing when the moon strikes this hour. Like I don't want to get caught up in that sort of plot driven. 
finale to be like, oh, we have to resolve this whole thing to get him back into being Moon Knight, you know? Yeah. And I think that, so, second retraction of the episode that we must issue is that we had said that, I think I had said that uh, Tawaret was part of the Ennead. She's not. Um, she is not one of the gods who has an avatar. She was not present at that little hearing, trial, whatever they had for Arthur Harrow. Mm-hmm. Um, which does raise the question of, like, the Ennead are not the end-all be-all of godly Egyptian power. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that'll come into play at all uh, in the next episode, if we're going to find out more about the Ennead. But again, I'm like, I feel Just like this call whole, it on them. I feel like this whole show should have been Mark, Steve, and Layla, that that's your show, and, you know, save save the gods for a movie. And, yeah, I don't know. I... I think, well, oh, yeah. And then we also have to resurrect Khonshu because Mark has to get his freaking power back. I know. So we do have to do <gasps> some Egypt stuff. Okay. Rebecca has had an opinion. <laughs> I wish you could see what's happening in the Zoom. Maybe we'll we'll show it off because. Except that I'm sitting in my closet full of clothing. But, oh, my God. Khonshu. Can Khonshu bring Steven back? Is Mark going to make a deal with Khonshu? That he will help him stop Harrow if he brings Stephen back from the land of the dead. Can Conchu do that? Yeah, I, I don't know because I'm like, are you saying that that would be at the cost of Mark's life? You know what I mean? Will Conchu do both? I guess it depends who has the leverage, but it did seem like, at least from the way that Conchu, you know, manipulated Mark in the beginning, that Conchu really, really, really wants an avatar. Yeah. Um, And I think for Mark to say, you know, yes, I realize that, like, there's a bullet hole in my body and I am dying. But also, like, I still would rather die and die with Steven than let you resurrect me without Steven. I don't know. I think he could say that. Though the other question is, too, is Khonshu going to pick Layla as his new avatar? Yeah. And does Layla want that? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, Layla seems like she maybe has her own demons. Yeah. And that, like, yeah, what if she had the ability to go and fight fire with fire? Mm-hmm. Would she take it, you know? I think she, like Mark, has a lot of anger to manage. Yeah. And so maybe in 2024 we get Lady Moon Knight. I'd be into it. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel like she might be more into it than Mark, but... Yeah, because we all are also are going into a phase of Marvel with the Lady superhero spinoffs. Mm-hmm. We are getting um, She-Hulk sometime this summer or fall. We're getting uh, Lady Thor. Mm-hmm. We got Kate Bishop, Hawkeye. Yep. And I think they announced, I've read an announcement that they're doing, I want to call her the Iron Maiden, but I don't Iron think that's Heart. what it is. Iron Heart. Mary Williams, yep. Yeah. Yes. So we're getting a lot, which, you know, love it, but it is, Yeah. I think it would be awesome to have some female superheroes who aren't just the female version of a male IP. (laughs) I know. I mean, I think it's, I completely agree. And yet I think it's hard because like when the comics books existed for so many years, they like kind of used every original idea under the sun. And so you had to just ladyify them. Maybe, but I feel like there are others, right? Like give Echo her own movie, you know? Yes. Well, she is getting her own show in December. But, but yes. like, you know, give her a feature film. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, just putting it out there, Marvel, Kitty Pride movie, get a awesome female superhero 
mutant on the board, Jewish. Yeah. I'd write it. I read I I saw um someone posted like a screenshot of a variety article that said like Mark Spector is the first openly Jewish character and everyone was laughing so hard because they were like the other Jewish characters aren't closeted. They just, like, weren't announced as Jewish. Uh, except for Magneto, who, I mean, that's not Marvel. That's That was done by Fox. Um, and we, uh, Rachel and I just watched X-Men Apocalypse. We are on our X-Men kick. Woof. And we were like, well, it's Oscar Isaac in Egypt. How can we not? Um, and for the third time we revisited Auschwitz Magneto for him to continue processing his trauma in destructive and violent ways. I really, really, really hope that they don't do that anymore. Yeah. <gasps> it would be awesome. But yes, he is. He is an openly Jewish character. He just, his entire Jewish identity revolves around being a Holocaust survivor who has taken his trauma and uses it to hurt other people, which we don't love. Yes. So hopefully we'll get some more <laughs> yeah. good Jewish characters soon. All right. Any any last predictions for next week? I don't think so. I am really just, you know, looking forward to what these writers do. And hopefully they bring something a little unexpected. Um, because I hope that episode five is not the best and most unexpected episode. You know, you, I really want this to go out with a bang. And I think actually most of the shows, even though we like to complain about their pacing mm -hmm. and some of the choices they've made, almost all of them have had a really good and satisfying finale. Yes. And so even, I thought even Falcon and Winter Soldier had a really satisfying finale. You hated it? I have mixed feelings about it. Okay. But I might have to do a, I might have to do a series on Falcon yeah. and Winter Soldier. Yeah. So I have a lot of feelings about that show actually. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so I'm I'm just looking forward to what uh what they're going to do and uh sort of how they're going to pick that and Yeah, just hoping we get some more Moon Knight and maybe someday we get a bit of a uh, Oscar Isaac directed by Sam Raimi cuz that's <laughs> the only thing I've ever wanted. Truly. Yeah. I mean, we have talked about like horror as a genre influencing this show and I thought this was a really interesting episode because it did build so much tension and so much anticipation i don't know if i'd consider it horror in any way shape or form but that's okay yeah yeah i mean i think it has some really good horrifying moments mm -hmm. but i think i think it needed to lean into it a little more and i actually would have liked some of those choices mm -hmm. yeah i kind of want to be scared sometimes you know but i did yeah. think this was on the whole an absolutely perfect episode we, I mean, it, it answered so many of our questions. It told us why Mark is so self-destructive, why and so ambivalent about his own death, and also why he's so vulnerable to Conchu's whole, like, protect the weak shtick. It's because he couldn't protect his own brother. So I just thought, yeah, this was, this was stellar. It answered so many of my questions and left me with more that I am excited to have answered next week. So Marvel, thank you. I completely agree. Oh, and I will recommend, I'm currently watching Severance, and it makes an excellent pair to Moon Knight um, because the premise of Severance is that there's a company that uh, separates your brain so that you have an at-work identity and an at-home identity. And the two do not know about each other. You cannot remember oh. one from the other. And it just, it's so, it's so weird and so strange. And for example, Adam Scott wants to forget and I don't want to spoil why, but 
he elected for this procedure. He chose this work-life balance. And it's just this so strange, like, you know, there's two identities. There's no memories. How do you reconcile them? What's the right choice? And, like, is the call coming from inside the house or are there multiple calls? Yeah, that's so interesting. And I'm, I, I've been really interested recently in, like, the question of, what media we find ourselves drawn to based on the kind of like cultural and political climate of the the age. And I wonder if this is something that is has a particular appeal for us in in this hellscape of late stage capitalism that, you know, we do feel so split. Um, and I also was making me think of a show from oh, well over a decade ago, Dollhouse by it was written by our least favorite man, Josh Sweden. But um, amazing show. And in the premise of it is that people, again, have elected to give up their memories for a set period of time to kind of work off, I think, debt is the idea. There's some sort of reward for them, like for a period of like seven years or something. And they basically become um, these like programmable dolls. Very, I, I think Westworld took a lot of inspiration from Dollhouse because they're basically programmed to, you know, you can rent someone to go on a date with, you can rent someone to do literally whatever. But the uh-huh. problem is that these are real people. And because they have taken their memories, no one has any idea how long they've been there or even that they had a life before this. And so this like company has the power to keep exploiting these people because they have no concept of how long into their contract they actually are um and then of course they start to form relationships with one another and start like pieces of memories start to break through and they start to remember things between the times that they're wiped and um it's it's a fantastic show i do recommend it um it's funny because i never saw westworld but i do whenever i describe dollhouse people are always like that sounds exactly like westworld i'm like yeah but it came out first huh cool i'll have to check it out yeah anyway lots of good genre tv out there yeah Excellent. All right. Well, do you got anything to plug before we go? Um, just the usual. Follow us on uh, Instagram. It's all genre to me. Email all genre numerical to me at gmail.com. Um, you can follow me at Rachel Baldwin 56 on all things. And um, I believe we will be dropping some premium support opportunities shortly. So... Sort of get that in your mind. Start thinking about that. Yeah, definitely uh, follow us on Instagram. We will be having some links in our bio, I think, that uh, we've been trying to figure that that technological piece of it out. And uh, we're apparently both dinosaurs, despite being in our mid-20s. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> we're failures as millennials. But, yeah, all genre to me, or it's all genre to me on Instagram. And I am on Instagram as well, at Donut. And that's about all I have. Excellent. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll uh, talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. It's all genre to me. This episode was edited by Rachel Baldwin, mixed and mastered by Brockman Day, theme song written and performed by Rachel Baldwin, music created and mastered by Brockman Day, artwork by Rebecca Glazer.